He said there's a line we always talk about, that alcoholic drinking line, go from controlled to uncontrolled drinking. He said there's another line in AA that very few people talk about, and this is the line I must cross if I'm going to live. And i got to go from being a taker to being a giver. And unless I cross that line, I'll drink again. If I don't find a way to be happy with you and with me and with God, I will drink again. You put me in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, I'm drunk. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're just getting started, if you're under that month, or you're just back and you're getting started again, I don't know where God's grace is going to enter, but I pray that it enters for you, that somewhere along the line you meet somebody that has a message that is intact, that is carrying a message of hope, because if I don't experience an entire psychic change, I'm going to drink. And I've got to go from AA being about me to where AA becomes about what I can do for you. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 57. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. Our goal is to entertain you and enrich your life with tools that will make your sober experience easier and more serene. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I'm a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. However, I am a believer in the program, and the recovery has brought my family I started this show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories I have been hearing in recovery meetings for decades and wanted to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. Please consider making a donation so I can continue to make quality episodes for you to enjoy. You can support us by clicking the donate button on our website, SoberShares.com, or there's a clickable link in the show notes of the episode you're listening to right now. Thank you for your consideration. My email address is mike at SoberShares.com. Please reach out to me with your listener feedback, questions, or show ideas. I'd like to take a moment to mention a few of our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. Thank you to Cameron M., David S., and Esmeralda R. I also want to touch on some feedback we received this week from Jim G. The title of his feedback is called Happy and Sobriety. I discovered your podcast a few months ago, and I am obsessed with your content. I'm approaching 14 months of sobriety after drinking since age 10. I'll be 62 years old tomorrow. I love attending my AA meetings and listen to your podcast whenever possible. I just finished episode 41. Thank you for your service in helping us get and stay sober. Thank you, Jim. And now it's time to meet our guest. His name is David B., and this was recorded at the second ever North Texas Roundup. Take it away, David. My name is David Bray. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. By the grace of God and sponsorship and the good rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I took my last drink on New Year's Day in 1981. For that, I am truly grateful. I really want to thank Larry and the committee for extending to me the privilege of being able to participate in the second annual North Texas Roundup. Thank you for allowing me to be here. In 1946, an alcoholic in Laguna Beach, California, had an alcoholic seizure on his kitchen floor and died. And by because of the grace of God, the paramedics got there in time and they revived him. Now what happened was, four or five years earlier, his Budinsky wife stuck the Saturday evening post of March 1st that contained the Jack Alexander article on his table where he liked to drink and look out his window. And when he came to in 1946, for whatever reason, 
he remembered that article and he got in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous. And that man got sober. And that man started carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and became convinced that that message was something that he wanted to be a part of and participate with. In 1958, an alcoholic who had been thrown out of the Midnight Mission in Los Angeles, California, and through a series of circumstances, found himself connected to the man who died on his kitchen floor. And the man on the kitchen floor carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to that man who got tossed out of the Midnight Mission. And that man became sober and became a great carrier of the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. In 1966, an alcoholic was sitting on the ledge of the seventh story of the Lancashire Hotel in Los Angeles, California, ready to jump off. And through a series of circumstances, he, he recognized that, well, what he thought about was his kids. And he thought, now on top of everything else, your kids are going to have a father that committed suicide. So he crawled back in the window and he called Alcoholics Anonymous and through a series of circumstances, he was led to the man who got tossed out of the Midnight Mission. And that man became this man's sponsor. And in 1982, I got sober in 1981, in 1982, I moved to Norman, Oklahoma with a year of sobriety, hadn't been sponsored, was going to a lot of meetings, but did not have any message and was really running out of hope, sitting in AA with a year of sobriety. And through a series of circumstances, I met the man who was about to jump off that seventh story. And the message that that man carried had depth and weight. The message that man carried was a message of hope of Alcoholics Anonymous. But what he carried was the message of our 12 steps and the program of recovery. And he spoke about it in such a way that it was just almost impossible not to pay attention. The idea of all those circumstances, the idea that somehow that message got filtered from 1946 from an alcoholic dying on his kitchen floor to somebody getting tossed out of the midnight mission to somebody coming in off the ledge. Most alcoholics never do those. They just die. And the power of the message somehow, because through God's divine grace, and today I don't, I don't discount that's what's taken place in my life, is I got hooked up with people that had the message intact. And I'm so grateful that there are, are events like this that take the time to say, you know what, that message is pretty darn important. Because there are alcoholics minutes from here, literally minutes from here, dying. Who knows, there might be some cat upstairs not even knowing this thing's going on right now. And I get the privilege of, of standing here sober when I should be drunk, dying, or dead. Now, what is, what is that? What's my responsibility in all of this? Because today what I believe is, in, in my area, and I, I don't know about your area, but... I believe a lot of the people that are coming into Alcoholics Anonymous believe the message is for them. It's their message. It should, it, AA is about me. And so that's what they treat it like. See, if I, when I had stuff that I thought was just about me, I treated it like it was just about me. And what Jim, and that man was Jim Shaw, and Jim's passed on. Many of me might have known Jim. Clancy, he's still kicking. And Chuck Chamberlain. And their message was so strong, but what they taught me was, this message isn't about you. You're just a small part. Your gift is you're sober. The gift is that the power of Alcoholics Anonymous can take somebody like me and through that process of our 12 steps transform what I had become through alcoholism into somebody that could live sober and possibly affect some other people. And I don't get to pick and choose who I get to affect. And if you knew the people I sponsor, you realize I don't get to pick and choose who I get to. <laughs> and 
the thing that the thing that I believe today is is I got to recognize what a gift being sober is. What an absolute gift God's given me to be sober. Now, if I treat the gift of being sober that God's provided to me, then I might start treating the gift a little differently. If I think it's just about me, I treat it like that. So I'm going to go a little bit into some of that. I was born in the city of Chicago, and, and uh, my father played baseball for, in the Chicago Cubs uh, farm system. He never made it to the big leagues, but my father grew up. He was a sports-minded individual. I've got two older brothers. So there's three boys and my mom, and, and sports was a big part of my upbringing. And so a lot of competitive, a lot of competitive juices rolled through our family. Um, the one thing about the way that I was raised, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the, the adage, it's not whether you win or lose, but it's how you play the game. We were never taught that. <laughs> we were taught there's only one way to enjoy it, and that's win. Win. So we were taught fundamentals. I, from an early age, my father, I was seven years old, my father built a professional mound out near the side of our house. We were, we were throwing off the mound. and. And um, the only difference was my two older brothers were pretty good athletes. The middle brother is the best. He, he lettered in football, basketball, and baseball uh, during high school. I hated him. Um, I don't know how many times you've heard a speaker get up, and a lot of times what they'll talk about is right from the beginning, they can, from their earliest recollection, they recognize that they were different. Something about them was different. Well, my two older brothers were pretty good athletes, and you know, I was one of those fat, chubby kids, and right away I knew something was different. My father used to take us out running. Now, th that's a bad deal for a fat kid. <laughs> Little League, I remember in Little League, I hit some of the long, on record, longest singles. You know, when I... When I hit it, when I hit it in my mind's eye, man, that's a triple. By the time I was rounding first, I said, ah, oh, the hell with it. That's a long way to second. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just kind of wait for the next guy. And um, high school, I went out for football because that's what braids do. You go out for football, and, and right, right away, I found out I had difficulty, I had trouble with my back. I have a big yellow streak right down the middle of it. <laughs> The coach kind of frowns when the guy with the ball is running at you and you step aside. And, and, uh, I remember a freshman year in the high school that I went to, there were four freshman football teams, the A squad, the B squad, the C squad, and the D squad. And, and I, I was on the bench of the C squad. And um, I remember this like the last week of football practice and the coach came up to me and goes, you know, Bray, for a guy like you who comes to football practice every single day, you're without a doubt the worst football player I've ever seen in my life. And, and he was right, man, I stunk. So I gave that up, and, and the next sport I tried was tennis. Kind of interesting, a fat guy on a tennis court. <laughs> Had a great serve. Won a lot of points off the serve, but if they returned it, point over. You know. <laughs> that side-to-side -side lateral movement, that's kind of a... So my tennis career was short. And then I took up uh, the game of golf when I was 14, and, and it seemed like just a natural fit. I started playing golf, and by the time I was 16, I was playing to a one handicap. And what I found out was golf was a great game for a guy like me, because for a guy like me, the thing you find out about golf is when you hit it, you don't have to run after it. <laughs> I 
And when you get away from the clubhouse where the coaches are, what you find out is you can hit it and light, light up a cigarette and walk after it. <laughs> and by the time you progress, you can light up a lot of stuff out there and walk after it. And... <laughs> I took my first drink when I was 14. That's all I did. Took my first drink. That's all I did. Didn't think anything about it. People were doing it. Took my first drink. I had had some sips before, but this was really the first time where we got together to, to, you know, somebody stole some booze somewhere out of their dad's cabinet or whatever and took some drinks. And we've heard all weekend long about that reaction that alcoholics get. And I, you know, whether I was born alcoholic, all I know is something took place. I took those first drinks, and when that first reaction, that, that first reaction that you remember as an alcoholic, took place, I have never felt anything like that prior to or since then of that first reaction to alcohol. I dropped 20 pounds. I shot up. Muscles just came out of me. I could talk to the girls. You girls frightened me. All of a sudden, things took place that I didn't recognize, and man, I wanted that. And what took place from that point forward was kind of a that, that V in the road. See, I knew I had to go down this way. I knew I had to be, you know, study. I knew I had to complete stuff. I knew I should be practicing. I knew I should be doing the things that good human beings do. And the other road was leading down the road to the destructive lifestyle of an alcoholic. And every morning when I woke up, I had that choice. Which one do, when do I go? Well, this was hard work. And this was that feeling of, I belong. And somebody couldn't, you couldn't have described that to me. All I knew is I wanted that feeling because that was that what Dr. Silkworth describes as ease and comfort. But what was important to me was, is my sponsor helped me understand what that sentence really says. A sense. I don't get ease and comfort from drinking. I get the sense. It's a false. It's not real. I get the sense of ease and comfort. But boy, I wanted that sense. I can clearly recall with every fiber of my being, I hadn't had a drink yet, but I knew it was in the glove compartment. I was okay. I hadn't drinking it yet. I just knew it was there. I get the sense that it's going to be okay if I can get it. So little by little, dreams start to fall away. Um, I graduated high school and, and, and went to this junior college. The golf team that I can, participated on, we, we actually won the Illinois Junior College State Championship. The last period of sobriety where I actually somehow mustered up enough willpower to stay sober was the three months during that golf season. And we won the golf championship, and the following spring they flew us to Odessa, Texas to play in the National Junior College National Golf Championship. There were scouts on hand. There were people going to be giving up scholarships to some of the major universities. And, and um, the first two days, I didn't drink. And in a golf tournament, when college, there's two ways that you qualify. There's four rounds in a golf tournament. And after the second round, if your team beat enough teams, your team qualified and you were in. Or if your team did not qualify, you as an individual, if you played well enough, you could qualify as an individual. Our team did not qualify, but as an individual, I qualified. So the guys that were, didn't qualify, they just said, we're going to go to the bar. That's all they said, we're going to go get a drink, you want to go? That's all they said. <laughs> you, 
they're going to have a drink. I go, well, yeah, this time, you know, this time it'll be okay. This time it'll be all right. I can handle it. 4.30 in the morning. I've, you know, I got a tea time. I think it was at 7.10. At 4.10, I've lost my, I don't know where I'm in. I've never been in Odessa. I've lost the people I'm drinking with. I don't really know where I'm supposed to be. I got to the tee at 7.08. I'm still hungover. And that was the last competitive round of golf I've ever played. All, I, all they said was I was going for a drink. And just, it just the idea that somewhere along the line, our book describes, but what about this guy called the real alcoholic? What about this guy? See, my father is a hard drinker. In my family, when I, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was always questioning because my brothers didn't seem to have the problem. My father, there was a lot of booze in our house, but my father and my mother seemed like they could handle it. My father's clearly a description of the hard drinker. He drinks a lot of alcohol. It's confusing because he drinks a lot of alcohol. To this day, he drinks a lot of alcohol. But when he wants to, he can stop. I don't understand that. And therefore, he don't understand me. Because I drink a lot of alcohol, but I can never stop. And so the idea that if I take a drink, something sets up that reaction, that phenomenon of craving, and over and over, I just go through those sprees. And so I, I shot a score that will not allow me to, to have any scouts look at me with any type of deal. I went to the fourth round, or we went out the next night. You know, it's like uh, the reading, what's the use? Doesn't matter now. I didn't realize that I had just played the last round of competitive golf. I didn't realize that I had just given up that dream. I didn't realize that from this point forward, I was probably, well, not probably, from this point forward, I was not going to really have any sustained movement in the positive direction. It was going to go down that road of alcoholic destruction. And all I did was take a drink, not knowing what I am, not knowing at that point what alcoholism is, not knowing the power of that idea in our how it works, cunning, baffling, powerful. How, how incredibly powerful alcoholism is, and I don't even know it. Because I'm always in this idea that I can stop, I can give it up. Our description says that somewhere along in our drinking career, we lose the ability to control our drinking. That's it, that's all it says. I love that phrase though, and it's our, that phrase is in our book like three or four times, drinking career. <laughs> Do you know we're the only people who have them? <laughs> Nope. Normal people don't even think about drinking as a career. <laughs> I'm thinking about issuing those, like, you know, the, the baseball cards, the tops, you know, alcohol. <laughs> you open up your pack and you're flipping through your home group's cards, you know, and you... <laughs> People that drink, you put them on the spokes of your bicycle, bang. <laughs> got the before and after picture on the front. Maybe you flip it over, it's got your stats. You know? 1978, lost job, lost car, lost, you know. 1980, went to jail, caused extreme violence. Tore out the hearts and souls of the people in your family. You know, 
my sponsor talks about that, you know, for us alcoholics, we are, we are people that are, that we, in those last days of alcoholic drinking, we live in the land of the, the, the land of the living dead. There's really nothing going on other than just survival, just existence. How do I drink? What do I got to do? Uh, I graduated from that junior college. I went to Northern Illinois University, which is in DeKalb, which is about 45 miles west of Chicago. You know, Illinois without Chicago is really Iowa. It's just... <laughs> it's just corn. Uh, Illinois is just a big cornfield, and, 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 and DeKalb is just that. It's just a cornfield, and they cut out some space they could put up the University of Northern Illinois and, and um, a bunch of apartments in the school buildings and a lot of bars. And, and, um, and so that's where I found myself, and, and this is the last stretch. This is my last stretch of drinking. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm trying to go to school, but I'm not going to too many classes. I'm, all I'm doing is drinking, and, and um, I'll tell you one last story, and that was, I think it was on... You know, Halloween on a college campus is kind of a big event. And alcoholics is just kind of like a free, it's like a free run, you know. <laughs> Dress up weird. And in 1980, there was a movie that came out called The Warriors. It's a movie about gangs. And, um, and one of the gangs in this movie was called the Baseball Furies. And they painted their faces red and white, and they wore baseball uniforms, and they carried baseball bats, and they sang that song that was on the movie, you know. So during this Halloween stretch, we decided to go to the party as the Warriors or as the baseball fury. So we painted our faces red and white and, and uh, put on baseball uniforms, and, and uh, I didn't have a baseball bat. But in my closet, my closet was one of those four-foot-wide, and they had the four-foot-wide oak closet pole. So I got my closet pole and went to the party. <laughs> and all I did was take a drink. That's it. You know, my sponsor talks about, you know, how do you test, you know, could you make a test for alcoholics? And I love his description. What's your reaction if you can think about it when you were maybe you, that those those terrible times where maybe you're a full day or two full days without a drink and you need one? What's your reaction after you take the first one? Whew. See, if your reaction to that is, whoo, you're alcoholic, sorry. Because you, you know. <laughs> that's what I've always drank for is that reaction. So I took a drink and went to the party. Now, near the end, when I drank alcohol, there's only one of three options that I have. The end, once I start to drink, there's only three stopping points. Our book describes this. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. So we seem to have two types of alcoholics in AA. We have some men alcoholics, and we have some women alcoholics, and that's it. We don't need all these special stuff. All we got is we got some men alcoholics and some women alcoholics, and that's it. And we got 12 steps, and they work for everybody. <laughs> but we have lost the ability to control our drinking. So when I drink from this point forward, the stopping points are A, I run out, B, I black out, and C, I pass out. And that's it. Now, of the three, the worst is running out. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you're out of alcohol and you have no physical financial ability to get alcohol. So now you have to become creative. <laughs> Translation, criminal.
I'm sure you've heard that idea of insanity. You know, we, we do the same thing over and over, expecting different results. I'll tell you, insanity for an alcoholic like me is if when I am out of alcohol and I need to drink, you get in the way. You're insane. <laughs> if you get between me and a drink when I need to drink, I'll hurt you. I have a tongue that can cut. I'm prone to physical violence. I'll lie to you. I'll steal from you. I'll do whatever it takes to drink alcohol. I will do whatever it takes. And those are the things that I did near the end. I did whatever it took. I didn't have any money. I'm broke. I'm trying to borrow money to, to complete my school. I'm doing all the stuff I, I have to drink. As soon as I get money, it doesn't go to books. I got, I got arrested on Northern Illinois' campus for stealing a 42-cent Conti crayon. I had an art class. I had $232 in my pocket when they arrested me. The idea of pulling a dollar out for a Conti crayon was, that's crazy, I'll just take it. So those are the kind of ideas I have when I'm drinking. Um, so I, I'm at the party, I drink alcohol, and the thing that was told to me the following morning, because this is one of those nights when I drink, I black out, was that about somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning, somebody saw me that was in the same apartment complex that I lived with, saw me walking in an opposite direction where I should be going. They grabbed me and they brought me to the, brought me to the place. When I walked into my neighbor's apartment, they were still up and going. I had about this much of that closet pole left. And I was saying, ooh, I was hurting people, I was hurting people. See, because I'm a guy that's prone to violence. That, that idea, that idea got me. Something's wrong. You know, every once in a while we have an intuitive thought. That's not right. I should, you know. It scared me, so I started looking in our paper. You know, every college, every college usually has their own newspaper, and they usually have a section in about the crime beat, and they'll list all the, all the crimes that go on. So I was looking through the paper to see if there was some story about some guy dressed up in a baseball uniform with a red and white face beating on people with a closet pole. And I couldn't find anything. I looked in the DeKalb paper. I couldn't find anything. Scared me for about 20 minutes. I did with that information what I've done with every other bad act I've ever done, and I just kind of push it aside. You know what I figure is if you're out there with me, you deserve what you get. See, that's what I've become. I don't care about you. If you, if you are uncareful with your money and I'm around, it'll be gone. See, I'm a liar, I'm a thief. I'm prone to incredible acts of violence against people that either trust me or believe that I won't do it. I have all those difficulties. And the thing that's amazing to me is I'm your Saturday morning spiritual or Sunday morning spiritual speaker. <laughs> so I have all this stuff going on. The last deal really that got me here is during Christmas break, I go home. Now I can't tell you how many times I've stolen from my parents, lied to them, broken their furniture, I've had their home destroyed. I, just the list goes on and on and on. I can't tell you how many times they've come home and found their son in a, in a puddle of his own vomit. I can't tell you how many times how many cars I've wrecked. I can't, the list is just endless. It's years and years and years of just total, absolute, self-centered, self-serving, alcoholic activity, and my parents are in the wake of all that. I come home between, at the Christmas break, and somewhere between Christmas and New Year's in 1980, my parents were invited to uh, one of my dad's company's 
Christmas party things or holiday parties, and so the house is empty. The two brothers are out wherever they're at. They're gone. They're out of the house, so it's just me and my parents. And it's one of those times where I call two or three people. You know, let's have a Hallmark moment, fire, just have a beer or two. You know, I invite two or three over, and it's one of those times where 98 show up. And, and this is one of those nights where I drink alcohol and I pass out. So now I do not have any ability to protect my parents' property. And this, 90, this horde of 98 basically destroyed my parents' home. Just to give you an example, the, in my parents' bedroom, in their, on their upper shelf was the lockbox that had all their important wills and papers and all that kind of stuff. And three days later, my mom found that in the basement, pummeled, jammed behind the furnace. You know, when they ask you questions, how'd that get there? How did this happen? You know, now I'm passed out. How the heck do I know? But, you know, there's no, I don't have a brother to blame it on. It's hard to lie about stuff like that. The last thing my father said to me before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, this is one of the things I hope I never forget. I hope I never forget this moment in my life. My father looked at me with the hatred and the contempt that a father should never have for a son. He looked at me and he said, you know, Dave, with a son like you, I don't need any enemies. You make me sick. We want you gone. We can't take you anymore. And I, you don't have any response to something like that. So I'm getting, I'm getting packed up. And for whatever reason, my mom talked to my dad one more time. And, and what it took place was, is the essence said, what are you going to do? And some words came out of my mouth. And this was on New Year's Day, 1981. And I said, if I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to need help. That's all I said. I haven't had a drink from the next day. January 2nd is my sobriety date to this day. Now, something took place, and I believe you, that moment, that one little sliver of time where I said I need hope if I'm going to stop is just really the starting point. It's the very first time I recognize something's bigger than me. I can't beat this thing. They whooshed me off to a treatment center. You know, as far as I'm concerned, treatment centers really don't have any way to help me recover. They provide me some information. They give me 28 days without drinking. I didn't take their pills, and I didn't swim in the pool, and I didn't make your wallets. I just sat there with total contempt and anger. They had some guy in a green suit singing songs, you know. <laughs> After 28 days, they issued me my $10,000 big book. <laughs> they whooshed me off to this halfway house. Interesting concept, halfway houses. They put any number, I don't know how big they are, the one I was going to was, I think there was 20 of us, 20 brand new people all together in a confined area. And I still, to this day, don't understand what it's halfway from or to. But do you know what 20 new people, all men, talk about? It's not the happy road of destiny. <laughs> the one thing they did is they made us go to some AA meetings. And, and so we started, I started going to some AA meetings. I'm not the guy that got to AA happy. For an extended period of time, I, was, I, was, I sat in the back with total anger and contempt. See, I didn't belong there. I was fairly young when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and everybody there was old. I mean, God, you were like 40. <laughs> you have to be there. Your life's almost over. <laughs> I'd share once or twice and, you know, spew vile. And people would come up to me and go, it's okay, kid, keep coming back. 
Oh, by the way, I spilt more than you drank. Today what I know is those people that say stuff like that, well, if you wouldn't have spilled so much, you might have got here earlier. I drank every drop. I remember my worst drink. I remember one of those days where you don't have any money and you need alcohol, and, and I was in a bar, and I, I don't have anything. The guys have stopped borrowing me money, and I saw the bartender. He, somebody had spilled some... Somebody spilled something on the bar top, and he was wiping it up with a rag. I asked him to squeeze it into a glass. <laughs> See, I need to drink alcohol. So I'm not a happy guy. I was about three months sober, and one of the buddies that I made in this halfway house got drunk. And this is one of the defining moments in my sobriety, because what I recognized was, here's a guy that you know, I'm good friends with. You know, you don't make very many friends, but this is a guy that I'm friends with, and he got drunk. They kicked him out, and I went back. I went to his apartment to save him. Not a good idea. Take, it wasn't a 12-step call. I went there by myself. Not a good idea. Book describes I'm not happy about my sobriety. I can't stand the people that have teeth in the AA meeting. <laughs> I'm so grateful. Yeah, come over here and tell me about your gratitude. You know, I go to his apartment to save him, and he's, he's already drunk, and... and um, I asked him if he wants to, wants to go to an AA meeting. He said no. He, want, he asked me if I wanted a beer. That's all he asked. For whatever reason, through God's grace, I said no. I said, hey, if you ever want to go to another AA meeting, call me. I'm still waiting for that call. But that moment, I walked out not happy about my sobriety. I walked out of his apartment with absolute certainty that AA doesn't work because he's drunk. I went to a meeting that night to resign. See, I didn't know you just stopped going. <laughs> So the meeting's going on, it's a fairly small meeting, and the guy that's leading the meeting is looking at me, he can tell, because I, I have that look. I'm, I'm insane. He's trying not to call on me, but there's too much time and too few folks, so he has to call on me, and it's one of those discussion meetings, and, and so he finally calls on me, and for about the next four or five minutes, I say things in an AA meeting that should never have been allowed to have been said. I tell all the people sitting there what a bunch of fools you are, you're a bunch of liars, I go, my buddy's drunk, AA don't work, you're all full of you-know-what. I'm using long strings of profanity. I mean, I can tell you, because at this point, my language consists basically of four-letter words and long phrases that begin with mother. I'm telling you all about a bunch of, you're just a bunch of mindless sheep. I don't want to hear about your book or your steps. And oh, by the way, I want all my money back. like I've been putting any money in your basket. <laughs> Finally, the guy that was leading the meeting said something very, very important. He said, Dave, shut up. <laughs> We're tired of listening to you. He said, Dave, I want to tell you one thing because this may be the last AA meeting we ever see in. And, I'm, and I want to tell you some things that, that probably you haven't heard before because probably nobody's ever told you the truth. He said, the reason that your buddy's drunk tonight isn't because AA don't work. He said, the reason your buddy's drunk tonight is because, for whatever reason, he's chosen not to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Honestly. He used that word, very important. Second, he said, and this is more important, Dave, he said, I want you to look around the room tonight because there's something that you need to know that nobody's told you. I want you to look at every single person sitting in this meeting tonight because there are two types of people sitting in this meeting. There are good examples of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are bad examples of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now pick the one you want to be and shut up. I had my first resentment in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I hadn't been paying attention late, you know, from that point to ever even get a resentment. I, this guy I hate now. I, how would I know that there was a difference? I'm the guy at the back. 
I'm the guy that comes in after the meeting starts. I'm the guy that leaves before the meeting ends. I'm the guy who gets up and gets coffee. I'm the guy who talks to the cute girls. I'm the guy that does all the stuff to disturb the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's about me and what I get, and therefore there is no concern for what you're trying to get. How would I understand any of that? Nobody had taught me that. See, I'm an alcoholic, and if what our book says is true, here's my problem. Here's what I suffer from. It's very clear. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I suffer, for, I'm, I'm under the, the hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. Now that last one I like. It's like somebody went in my backyard and built a pool and filled it with self-pity, and I just swim in the deep end. And my, my sponsor talks about a sixth, and he talks about self-serving. So what I do is most of the day is I'm carrying around my little six-pack of self. And whenever I want, I just crack one of those babies open and I can rationalize and justify any bad action, even when I'm sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, because if it's about me, then I have no concern about you. Our doctor's opinion is very clear about what happens to us. I don't know any better description of unmanageability and powerlessness other than this, and that's when I drink alcohol, I do not have the ability to do the things that I intend to do on a daily basis, and I can't stop from doing the things I know are wrong. I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I can't stop. I don't know of a, a more hopeless state of living. But the doctor says this, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope in his recovery. That's what the doctor writes. Today I understand that's what I suffer from. I need an entire psychic change. That scares you, if you're new. Psychic change? What, we got to call Miss Cleo later? I mean, what the heck is it? <laughs> Our 12th step says it real simple. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That's the psychic change. I, I go from, I go from, my sponsor makes it even more simple. See, I'm a, like I told you at the beginning, I need things very easy to understand because I'm a complicated guy. He said there's a line we always talk about, that alcoholic drinking line, go from controlled to uncontrolled drinking. He said there's another line in AA that very few people talk about. And this is the line I must cross if I'm going to live. And I got to go from being a taker to being a giver. And unless I cross that line, I'll drink again. If I don't find a way to be happy with you and with me and with God, I will drink again. You put me in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, I'm drunk. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're, if you're just getting started, if you're under that month, or you're just back and you're getting started again, I don't know where God's grace is going to enter, but I pray that it enters for you, that somewhere along the line you meet somebody that has a message that is intact, that is carrying a message of hope, because if I don't experience an entire psychic change, I'm going to drink. And I've got to go from AA being about me to where AA becomes about what I can do for you. Because if I can have that, then it's something that I want to be a part of. If AA is about me, sooner or later, it's, going to, it's not going to be enough. There's never enough for people like me. The thing that took place was my sponsor. I moved from, moved from Chicago to Oklahoma, and I landed in a group that saved my life. And I didn't realize that a group could do something like that. I landed in a group that had sponsorship intact. The message was intact. I fell into a group that they work steps out of the book in order. That's a concept. I thought you just pick and choose. Nobody taught me. And that's where I met the man on the seventh story floor that was about to commit suicide. 
1966 he got sober. In 1982 he moved to Norman and I met him. And I sat in meetings with this man and he talked about an Alcoholics Anonymous I had never known or experienced. And through a series of circumstances, that man became my sponsor. And he started saying things to me that hurt my feelings. <laughs> there seems to be this fear of telling an alcoholic the truth. And my sponsor told me the truth with, with colorful metaphors. I remember one time I called him up and I was just rattling about, I was whining about something. And he said, Dave, shut up. He said, you know, I assume that you asked me to be your sponsor because you want what I have. I can assure you I want nothing you have. And he hung up on me. <laughs> I called him back. I said, Jim, I'm sorry. <laughs> he took me through the very first time I did an honest inventory. And see, I had, and this is real important for my recovery. This is the very first time I took a long stretch at that, that inventory process, and I wrote down all my resentments and honestly faced the people that I hate. See, I don't, I don't resent you. I hate you. <laughs> I had on my resentment list an entire country, and I'd never been there. And we went through the list of the cause and the effect and, and that terrible fourth column, my part. And for the first time, I recognize the things that that inventory took place helped me understand how selfish, self-centered, self-serving, self-deluded, and full of self-pity I am. And those are the things that get me to the place where I can't get comfortable with you. You're my enemy. There are two types of people on the planet, people I can use and manipulate and the people that threaten me. There's no equals. And what that inventory allowed me to recognize is, is I have to do some things differently. I wrote down all my fear. I didn't realize how afraid I was. I get all that fear out. The best description of an inventory I've ever heard, that fourth and fifth step process, when I'm an alcoholic and I'm doing that alcoholic lifestyle and I get home like I did with that closet pole incident, I just I throw all that stuff. I can't deal with the guilt and the remorse of how I live. And so it's like I come home and I open the door to the backyard and I throw it out. I throw all that crap out in the, big, in the backyard. And one day, I'm sober and my sponsor comes over and he, pull, he draws the drapes to the backyard and we look out and there's this big pile of crap. And he said, we're gonna do an inventory. And what I gotta do is I gotta go out there and I gotta take that big pile and I gotta write all my resentments and all my fears and all that problem with sex and I make that big pile into all these little piles and I stick a red flag in each little pile. Resentment, resentment, fear, sex, resentment, resentment, fear, sex, resentment. Now you look out, instead of one big pile of crap, there's hundreds of little piles. And they all got these little red flags sticking out of them. The fifth step is get somebody stupid enough to come over, to the, come over and walk around with you in the backyard while you tell them about every little pile. Now, I was convinced that when that took place, that man was going to look at me and say, you know, Dave and AA, we deal with the bottom of the barrel, but we didn't have people like you in mind, and you're going to have to go. I, I really, I was afraid they were going to ask me to leave. That was the fear. See, I don't belong with good people like you. That was my fear. My fear is that somehow I'm doing things that you cannot understand. I'm doing things that you will not be able to forgive. How could you forgive me? I can't forgive myself. How can God forgive me? I am stuck. That's the fear that I walk around with. Today I understand that's what separates the people that, that have the willingness to do that inventory. That inventory is the great equalizer. 
It allows me to be just like you. And what I found out was my sponsor told me, Dave, you need to understand you're not different. There's no new emotion that's been invented for the last 5,000 years. There's no, there's no degree of, of anger, greed, lust that you've experienced that somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous hadn't experienced. There's nothing that you can do that'll, that'll separate you from us as long as you have the willingness to be honest about it and have the willingness to amend it. And I really believe in my heart of heart because in our area what we've watched is several people with significant time go back out and drink. You know how hard it was the first time to get back in? I can't imagine what it is for those people that are trying to come back in a second time or a third time. We've got guys that have gone in and out the revolving door. I'm going to tell you a story, and this is one of those things that just, just amazes me. About Sometimes I don't know why I have to do the steps. Why do I have to do them? Why does somebody else have to do them? A man that had got sober the first time in 1996 had been in and out. The longest he ever got was three years, and he came back last year. And he came to me and he said, Dave, I, I don't want you to be my sponsor, but I know that you have to be. <laughs> so we started talking a little bit. And I, you know, I said, do you have any problem with step one? No. Do you realize that there's a power out there that he goes, Dave, I know. That's why I've asked you. I said, then we're going to get busy right now. I didn't wait for a year. We're going to get busy right now. We're going to start writing your inventory. And I said, I want you to tell me out loud right now what's been causing you to drink. What are you guilty over? What are you ashamed of? What are you, what's keeping you separated? And he told me. He told me these things that he had done. And one of them was he had stolen some money from a group across town. And he said, I have so much guilt about that. It just wakes me straight out of bed at night. I can't drink enough. And I said, well, what we're going to do is, and just through a series of circumstances, he was able to get some money together. And I said, what you're going to do is you're going to go over there and you're going to make amends to that group. And you're going to pay the amount, plus you're going to pay eight years of interest. And he said, okay. So he took this wad of money and I said, when they get to, the, when they get to that announcement part of their, their format, you stand up and you make amends to that group. So he did that. He took that money over there, and when they asked for announcements, he stood up, and he was scared to death. And he said, I, I took money from your group eight years ago. And I took this amount of money, and he paid it back with interest. He put it on the table. Now, that in itself would be a good story. But here's the thing that I watched how God's hands work. There was a kid sitting in that meeting that was dying. He was sober about a year and he had never had anybody work any steps with him. And AA was not working for him, and he, was about, he knew he was about to leave. And he saw this man stand up and do a ninth step. And he ran over to Chuck, and he said, I've never seen anything. Where do you go to meetings? Who's your sponsor? Can you show me where that is? He had this idea. He, he, so Chuck brought him over. We got started. Now I'm sponsoring that cat. He'd been, he was 31 years old. He was living with mom. And he couldn't get out of, he couldn't get out of it. And we started doing this program of action our book talks about. Now he's on his own. He's got a job. He's happy. He's blah, 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 blah. Now you can't, now you can't shut the guy up. <laughs> what happened was somebody didn't amend and somebody saw it. I don't ever know why I got to work these steps. Alcoholics Anonymous is no longer about me. I have the gift. The gift of sobriety is simply, and all it is is that God, for whatever reason, 
allowed me to get into a place where I could hear the message. And the message was from the man on the kitchen floor to the man getting tossed out to the man on the seven-story ledge. And it was handed to me in perfect working order. I went to Jim when he was dying. And I told him, I said, how can I pay you back? I mean, how do you pay a guy back that gives, he basically handed my life to me. He handed me my life back. How do I pay that back? And he told me, Dave, he said, Dave, you know, I've been trying to carry this thing for almost 30 years. He died with just shy of 30 years sober. And he said, it gets obvious that my time's over. He said, now it's your turn. It's your turn to carry the message. He said, don't water it down. And oh, by the way, get along with Calvin. <laughs> Calvin was a guy that was brother sponsoree that I had a little disdain for. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I, you know, every once in a while, I still get some of that stuff. I told Jim to the best of my ability, I'll, I'll try to carry this message. And, and uh, I've tried to keep it intact. I'll tell you a couple quick stories and I'll get out of here. Relationship with my father. I was, like I said, I went to, with a year of sobriety, I came to Norman, I got involved with the OU, I was trying to get my education. Now, I wasn't somebody who got perfect right away when I got to AA. And at four years sober, I was a senior in, high school, senior in college. Now, I started college in 1978, and I graduated in 1987. <laughs> I wanted to be sure. I had a lot of trouble. I just had this motivation trouble. I'm lazy. That's really what it is. And, and, um, and so I was, in a, I was in a marketing class and a management class, and they were basically doing projects. I'm four years sober, and I'm tired. I'm not saying these things to my sponsor, but what it, bottom line is this project was very similar. So I took the information from this project and brought it over to this project. And it just so happened that the guy that was teaching this class was teaching a section of another in that class. And I didn't change a comma, <laughs> uh, exclamation point, and at four years sober, I got caught for academic misconduct at the University of Oklahoma. Now, it just so happened that within a week or so, I was going to graduate, and my parents were going to come down and watch me. And I had to call them and say, don't come. I got caught for cheating. And all the work that I had tried to do for the first four years was erased. Now, I'm not a perfect member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I told my sponsor, and we just started again. He said, you're, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to drink? You're going to leave? What are you going to do? You're going to make amends. So one more time, I started the process. Started the process. Started the process. Did all the things that I was supposed to be doing. Wrote letters. By the way, stop cheating, Dave. That, that's a, that's, that seems to be a part of it. Don't, don't. What part of honest have we missed here? So one more time, I started writing the letters, and I'd go and... and and I'd see all the stuff, you know, I'd try to get to the events, and I'd, I'd give cards on my dad's birthday and my mom's birthday, and, and I'd try to make as many trips back home as I could. And, and um, on my 15th year A birthday, my wife got sneaky, and she flew in my parents. And there was a crowd there, and a lot of the people that I sponsored were there, and, and AA was shining that day. Just the women were looking good, and the men were looking good, and, and it was a nice event. And they heard a lot of people stand up and say nice things about their son. That's all they heard. They just heard the people of Alcoholics Anonymous say some nice things about their son. And by the way, the last nine years I'd been doing, or the last 11 years I'd been doing all that, trying to do that in men work. And on that Sunday when I was taking my parents back to the airport, my father pulled me aside and he said, you know, Dave, 
there was a time when I thought maybe you had a promising golf career. He said, but after this weekend, it's really been obvious that you've been called to a higher order. And our amends were complete. And from that day to this day, every conversation that I have with my father ends with, Dad, I love you. And he says, Dave, I love you. And we were people that didn't use those words. Now, that might not mean a lot to too many people, but I'll tell you, I can go home here and I can, with that understanding, I can go here and understand that God's given me a gift that I didn't deserve back. That man hated me and I didn't believe I would ever have that relationship, nor did I deserve to ever have it back. I treated him with total disdain and your power, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, restored that. The hardest thing I've ever had to watch is watch my mom dying of alcoholism. Somewhere along the line, that she crossed that line and, and, and my wife and I, the only times we would fight is when I would have to make those amends and I'd have to go to my parents' house and sit and watch that insanity and my mom is drinking and she's got cirrhosis of the liver and she's blacking out and, and the conversations you have 14 minutes are different but they're the same and she can't remember and, and it's just crazy. And I'd call Jim and say, Jim, man, I can't take it. I can't. I've talked to her and talked to her and she goes, you're going to be the last person that can help her. And he'd tell me the story about his father and Jim's dad got sober when he was 78. In fact, there was an article in the grapevine about Jim's dad and I, somewhere that he was the oldest, at that point, he was the oldest man to ever get sober. And Jim's dad died with just shy of 10 years. And he always talked in meetings. And he was up in Oklahoma City. And he always talked about those were the best years of his life. And so Jim would keep telling me that story. In 1993, my father lost his job. And, and through a series of circumstances, he was at home. And one night, he woke up. And my mom wasn't in the bed. And he went looking for her in the house. And he found my mom in the kitchen chugging a bottle of vodka. And he called me. And we talked a little bit, and the next day he called us, I think on the 8th day of January in 1993, he called me and they'd stuck my mom in a treatment center. And on the 8th day of January in 1994, I stood up in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I got to hand my mom her one-year silver medallion. And in 1998, I stood up in that same meeting of Sarasota, Florida, I got to hand my mom her five-year silver medallion. And in 2003, my mom and my dad came to our group in Tulsa, and I got to stand up and I got to hand my mom her 10-year silver medallion. And my father stood up in that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and he thanked AA for the lives of his son and his wife. And he's not a church-going man, he's not any of those things, but he understands what goes on in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife and I, she's an active member of Al-Anon and, and she sponsors a bunch of those Al-Anon gals and, and I'm an active guy and I sponsor a bunch of those AA guys and and our life is full. My favorite room, we've got a room in our, in our house, and it's just full of all our AA people. And it's every once in a while when you get down, I just walk in there. And I recognize well, how grateful I am and how grateful I need to be for what God's given me. See, if this gift is not about me, it's about what really, in essence, it seems to be that the gift passes through me. There's a line in our book that I love, and it's about the gaunt prospector in the chapter Family Afterward, and it talks about that father gets sober, and at the beginning he might want to hug the treasure to himself. But what he finds is, is that he has just scratched a limitless load that will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and, and insists on giving away the entire product. See, if I get here and I stop, if it's only about me, then I won't treat your meeting with respect. If it's about me, I'll wear a hat in the meeting. If it's about me, I'll get up and get coffee. If it's about me, I'll go to the bathroom. If it's about me, I'll use profanity. If it's about me, I will disrespect everything that goes on here because it's about me. But see, if it's about what I bring forward, if I really recognize that God has given me an incredible gift, 
Will I treat that as God's gift to me, and how will I present it? So when I go to my meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get there early. I stand in our greeting line, and I try to welcome all the people that come through the door. We make each other's coffee. We take meetings to our local jail. We take meetings to our local detox center. We take meetings into our hospitals. We're trying to get to the people that are dying of alcoholism. This is no longer about what I get. If AA is about what I get, I will be very disappointed very quickly. Because our program isn't about me, it's about what I give. I go from taking to giving. And when I live my life based on what I can give back, I get a whole room full of people that, that I am so pleased to be around. I don't know if you've ever seen when you drive by a liquor store, and every once in a while I'll still notice it, it says wine and spirits. <laughs> you know, for, for me, alcoholic is a spirit. I pour that stuff in me and boof, lights it up. Today what I realize is, is that if my problem is spiritual, which our book describes, I have a spiritual malady. In our 12 and 12 it says I have a perverse soul sickness. That's strong language. That sounds politically incorrect. How dare you say that to me? <laughs> I have a perverse soul sickness. Alcohol was the thing that allowed me to live comfortably around you. Now, if you take a spirit out of me and you don't replace it with the spirit, I'm a dead man. What our 12 and 12 says is AA is a set of spiritual principles, which if practiced as a way of life, can enable the sufferer to be happily and usefully whole. You have handed me that, and all my sponsor said was, is pass it on. Give it to the next person. Make sure the new, make sure the new people have a shot at it. It was intact when I got here. I have a responsibility to keep it intact. Thank you for allowing me to participate in your second annual North Texas Roundup. And that's going to do it for another episode of Sober Shares. I want to read something called A Vision for You. It's from page 164 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we only know a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode. Love you. Bye.